to it. Let me pray for us as we open up and ask God to bless the teaching of his word as well as our small group time. So let's do that now. God, we, we want to confess that we are in desperate need of you. We are men who, who understand that without you we are nothing, as Jesus said to us um, in John chapter 15, that unless we abide in you, we have no life, we have no fruit. And apart from you, God, we can do nothing. And we recognize this, God, we confess that, and we pray that now with that reality, with that understanding, that you would help us to cling to you, God. And as we study your word this morning, I pray that you would enliven it and help us to wake up, for those of us who are still kind of <laughs> still uh, waking from our slumber, so to speak, help us to be engaged and to be um, engaging with the word that you've given us. God, I pray that you would bless the teaching of your word this morning and also bless our conversations as we are brothers in the Lord trying to strive side by side together. Would you enable us to continue to do that with vigor and with uh, with passion, with zeal. God, use us to grow your body. Use us to serve your body. Use us ultimately, God, to bring your name glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're covering roughly two chapters this morning out of 1 Samuel, uh, chapters 2 through 4. And what we're going to do is focus on just a few of those portions. Hopefully you've already read it. You know what's going on. You've been studying it all this week. And so what I want to do this morning is look at a few specific texts as it relates to what godly leadership looks like. So I've titled this message, The Call, The Urgent Call for Godly Leadership. I have a small um, but growing list of books that I want to read on an annual basis. Um, there are some books in my life that just so impact me, so speak to me, or so helpful to me that I, I just I want to make sure that I get them in on a regular basis, review them, uh, understand them, read them. And one of those books is called The Conviction to Lead by Dr. Albert Moeller. Um, one of the reasons I enjoy that book is because it's very helpful. I mean, all of you, I recommend it to you. You should absolutely read that book. But um, in that book, he talks about the conviction to lead. He says, leadership often is, is, is seen as, as a means to an end. But for Christians, we have to understand that our leadership must take place from the central understanding of, of what we're here to do. The conviction that we live through and by God's word and through that word and through, his understand, uh, through that, uh, that narrative of how... Sorry, it's still early. Through that narrative... <laughs> We understand the world. He says, authentic leadership in its clearest form is the willingness of people to die for their beliefs, knowing that Christ will vindicate them and give them the gift of eternal life. And that's what it means to be a leader with conviction. And in summary, what it means to be a godly leader. It's knowing what we believe is true and willing to boldly put it all on the line to uphold that. And the reason I bring that up is because what you see in 1 Samuel chapters 2 through 4 is the polar opposite of that. In fact, what you see is the abject failure of leadership in the life of Eli. We have every reason to believe that Eli was a believer, but what you see in his life is the rejection or the neglect of this God-given roles and responsibilities as both a priest and a father. Knowing that I'm talking to priests and fathers in this room, I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at Eli and also his sons and see what we can glean from his leadership or lack thereof. For us, gentlemen, we need to see what God expects of his people, and particularly the, the, heads, of our, the heads of our homes here. Uh, for those of you guys who are fathers and husbands and sons in some respects and grandfathers, heard that, I was going to say that, I promise, um, managers, great-grandfathers, you get the idea. All of us, to some degree and in varying ways, are leaders, and so it is helpful for us to not only embrace that understanding, but also to live our lives in accordance to that. And again, what I've titled this message is the urgent call to godly leadership. It is not a, 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 a business mindset. It is a godly mindset. It is an understanding of 
what we're here to do. And what I also want to help you see is that the stakes are quite high for us. You might see, see yourself in a very small capacity as someone who has only a small domain with little influence, but truth be told, God has committed all of us, God has given all of us the task of being godly leaders in whatever domain, however large or small, he's granted. So with that, let's jump into the text and take a look at what we can learn from the life of Eli, his sons, and a little bit from Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse 12, we're going to look at the first three gentlemen, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, his sons. It says here, now the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were worthless men. The NIV, I like the word that the NIV uses, it uses the word scoundrels. Kind of gives you a sense of what the author is going for there. They did not know that his respect or regard the Lord. The customs of the priests with the, with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling and with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Uh, so clearly you have the sense that that's not what God had intended for them to do. They're taking unlawful sacrifices at this point. Verse 15, moreover, or on top of that, before the fat was burned which would have been the, pre, uh, the, the peace offering, according to Leviticus 3.5. Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me the meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man who had an understanding of the law said to him, well, let's wait for the fat to burn first, and then you can take as much as you wish. That thug assistant would say, no, you must give it to me now, and if not, I'll take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Grim starts. Now, if you remember, I'm sure Pastor PJ already talked to you about this, that the, the, the beginning of this book is set on the backdrop of the period of the judges. Continues to get worse, though. Verse 22. It seems like the, uh, these young men were emboldened by their father's passivity. Here's what happens. Eli was very old by this point. So again, some time has passed. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, I don't know what's taken dad so long to respond to this. I would expect that he would take some drastic measures to stop his sons from profaning the name of the Lord. But verse 23, here's what we get. Eli said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? I want to point out to you the fact that what little correction Eli does offer is, is weak at best. And what he does say is, it's one final plea. Hey, sons, please listen to me. We have, you know, this isn't good. You're, you're bad reputation all around Israel. And I want to make sure that that's not the case. And by the way, Keep in mind that you're sinning directly against God and you're sinning with a high hand. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why? Purpose clause. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now that's a sobering sentence right there. There is a time when God's grace and patience can be exhausted. We often talk about the everlasting nature of God's grace and the everlasting nature of his patience. But realistically, I mean, there is an end point to that. At some point, God will deal with sin. And in the case of Hophni and Phinehas, he dealt with their sin earlier than I'm sure Eli would have hoped. As a, as a father, 
And as, as many of you guys in here, I'm sure one of your deepest burdens is to see your sons and your daughters come to a, a saving knowledge of Christ. For Eli, Eli, I'm sure he felt that as well, but check it out. His inactivity, his lack, his lack of engagement with his sons in an appropriate way left them to God's judgment. Far be it from us that we should abstain from disciplining our sons and daughters or our grandkids as the case may be because we don't want them to, we don't want them to be disciplined by the Lord. Well, anyhow, like in Romans chapter 1, Hophni and Phinehas were given over to their sin. God gave them up to it. He, he's going to judge them for it. Verse 27, God sends a man of God, uh, another name for a prophet, to Eli to judge Eli. Now, why is God not talking to Eli? He sends a man of God. Here's what happens. Verse 31, 1 Samuel 2, 31. The man of God says to Eli, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there, there shall not be an old man in your house forever, cutting off your family tree. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared, but, but only for this, to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Again, sobering words and sentences from a man who's failed in his ability to lead his family and his church, as it were. Where did Eli go wrong? Well, I think there's a lot of things we can look at Eli and say, well, first of all, he had a disregard for God and his holiness. Not only that, but he failed to discipline his sons. He enabled, and it seems like he participated in their sin. Verse 26 talks about, or 29 rather, talks about how they fattened themselves on the Lord's offerings. So not only did Eli not correct their sin, but he was complicit in it. And then verse 29 also says that he loved his sons more than he loved his God. Oh, the danger of our family relationships here. He only provided a verbal warning. When he did correct him, it was a weak correction. And by then, it was far too late. I think fundamentally what we can learn from the life of Eli is that a godly leader is not someone who kind of keels over when it gets tough or, or, uh, or steps back and says, you know what, I'm just going to let this thing play out. Kind of get a laissez-faire approach to this thing. No, godly men, men who wish to exercise godly leadership, must, point number one, resolve to uphold a high view of God. And I think that's where Eli went wrong. If Eli had had his understanding of God in place, I think a lot of his, the following actions that he took would have been much more appropriate to what, what, what needed to happen. Resolving to uphold a high view of God, if, you're, if, if you know what our compass distinctives are, you notice that that's our third distinctive. Um, we seek to maintain a high view of God. That's part of the fabric of what we in, endeavor to do here at Compass. And yet you should also know that the, the world, and even the Christian world, the Christian evangelicalism is kind of working against that for us. There are t-shirts um, that say, Jesus is my homeboy. He's not. Not your homeboy. And then the picture that they have on the shirt is this, you know, silly-looking, goofy Jesus. There was a popular pastor a few years back who wore that T-shirt during his sermon. I'm thinking, dude, you, you don't understand God. If Jesus is my homeboy T-shirts are not good enough for you, you can also get a Jesus bobblehead for your car. Yeah, there's, there's Christian organizations that sell that. I want you to put a Jesus bobblehead in your car with a thumbs up at you all day as you drive the 405 having him look at you and approve your whatever you're doing. And of course, you can also get Jesus action figures. 
Jesus in various action poses. And if you have a daughter, maybe you want to get her that Jesus is my coach porcelain figurine. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we're working against. And this is the culture that we live in. And it's getting probably not better. We'd all agree with that. It's not getting better. God's not being held in higher esteem. It's fact, he's, he's becoming a far more backseat driver than he used to be. But one of the things that we have to remember, and as Tozer reminds us in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is how we understand God will influence everything else about our lives. Everything. There is not one thing that you can think of that will not be influenced by your understanding of who God is. If the source of the stream is contaminated, everything downstream will also be contaminated. The source of our stream is our understanding of God. Everything is influenced by that. So if we're going to be godly leaders who uphold a high view of God, I have four subpoints for you taken from the text. First of all, we need to not be like Eli's sons who are worthless men who did not know God. Now, they're not knowing God as, as much larger than simply a, an awareness. They knew, they knew of God. They did not know him, in a, know him in a saving relationship. Part of that, I'm sure, has to do with their rejection of all things sacred. They probably did not open their Torah. They didn't open their scriptures to, to find out what God would desire of them. They didn't care. So for us, let us be the opposite. Letter A, we need to cultivate an insatiable appetite for God's word. We need to be the kind of men who are unwilling to compromise at this fundamental and basic part of the Christian life. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, so let this be an encouragement to you. We need to faithfully ingest God's word. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the full armor of God. And then it says the weapon of our warfare is God's word, the sword of the spirit. That's our weapon of offense and defense. And how foolish of us to go out into battle day by day without having that sword polished and sharpened, ready for good work. I got the, I had the privilege of doing baptisms this last weekend, and so I had a chance to talk to a lot of your sons, daughters, grandsons or daughters, perhaps. And um, one of the consistent testimonies that I hear is, I went to church, I, you know, I, I did it, I went through all the motions, but then when God saved me, I loved his word. I wanted to spend time in it, I wanted to read it. And, and I, you know, I, 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 had, I have a great desire to see God work through his word now. And I said, praise God. Amen. And I also warned them. <laughs> I said, hey, that's awesome that you feel that way. But recognize your feelings are fickle. And at some points, the honeymoon will be over and it will suddenly become work to open up your Bible. It will be a discipline that you need to engage in rather than a feeling that you need to enjoy. So I said, make sure, young person, that you make it a habit of discipline to keep reading your word every day. If Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone and you need bread daily, how much more do we need his word? How much more do we need to engage in that? For us, we need to keep on setting the example for what that looks like, gentlemen. As the men's Bible study leaders and as the men's Bible study attendees, you guys are the leaders of the church. You're setting the tempo in a lot of ways for the spiritual climate. And therefore, you have the responsibility of setting the pace for the rest of people that are following, your wives, the other women at Compass, your kids, your grandkids, they're going to look to your example and say, how does dad do it? How does grandpa do it? How does, uh, how does that highly respected person at Compass do it? They're looking at you. We need to cultivate an insatiable appetite for God's word, feeding on it day in and day out. And for us, there's really no excuse. I mean, the, the, the technology that we have, DBR website, podcasts, you can listen to DBR on podcasts, you get audio Bibles that are really cheap. We have everything at our disposal to make this a reality. Let us not be like Hophni and Phinehas who are worthless, not knowing the Lord, especially when we have so much opportunity for the opposite. Letter B, 
And verse 17, excuse me, in verse, yeah, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, it says, The sin of the young men was great in the sight of the Lord, for they treated his offering with contempt. Hophni and Phinehas thought lowly of God because they obviously did not believe in God. I think one of the things that we would do well to do is calibrate our thoughts about God. That's letter B. We need to calibrate our thoughts about God. And I touched on this in our very in the opening part of this point, but we need to understand that, again, everything's working against us in this regard, so we need to be all the more adamant to not offer, to not treat the Lord with contempt, to not think lowly of him. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 and 31, you can jot that reference down. It says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, that is deliberately or arrogantly, sins against God in those ways, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off, which is to say exile or death. His iniquity shall be on him. For us, it's, it's all the more important that if we're going to be godly leaders, we need to protect our hearts and how we understand God. Proverbs chapter 4 says that, that the, the, the heart is the wellspring of life. From it flows everything else. And so our hearts need to be guarded to esteem God in the right way. God is, as Scripture says, a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. We must recognize his holiness, the awe, the reverence that is due to him. You might, but then you might say, but Pastor Rod, God also uh, is a God of grace. In fact, his, his throne is called a throne of grace. Yes, it is. But don't forget, it's still a throne. God is still king. God is still the ruler of all creation. And it is to him that we must give an account. Don't forget Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. As a means of example, God utilized their, their witness, or their false witness rather, to make an example of them. We must esteem God in our thoughts. You just read recently Isaiah chapter 6, the vision of God in heaven where Isaiah says, sees what's going on, holy, 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 falls down. Ezekiel chapter 1 has a similar experience with God. He falls down. My point is that we need to recognize that the God that we're so often exposed to can, can feel like, oh, we're familiar with him. And we can grow presumptuous. We need to protect our hearts against that and calibrate our thoughts by enjoying God's word, reading God's word, memorizing God's word, and especially focusing on those passages about his holiness. God calls us friend. Jesus has been kind to us in adopting us in the family, but let that never change our esteem for him. And may we, as God's men, uphold a high view of him by calibrating our thoughts. Let her see. Verse 22, here's one thing I want to focus on here. Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel. He kept hearing. You might notice that earlier on I focused on the fact that he took so long to finally say something. As godly men, we must, let her see, call out and correct sin faithfully especially when it happens within our own domain, no matter where that might be. In a day and age when it's wrong to call someone wrong, a day and age where a boy can be a girl or a girl can be a boy or a fox can be a goat or whatever your desire is, let it not be said of the church, and particularly our church, that we, we allow or enable such behavior. We call a spade a spade. And may it start with us. Godly men are going to be the first to call their own sin out before God calls it out. You're going to be the first to step up and say, hey, Carl, John, I, I sinned against you. Here's what I did. Will you please forgive me for that? 
we need to be willing to call out sin first in ourselves, and then secondly, in the various areas of responsibility that God has given us, God has granted. We need to be willing to call sin out. This is how we keep the camp pure. This is how we keep the church pure. When we tolerate sins, however small, that's when we become a danger to ourselves. Because sin is never satisfied with just a little bit. It's like that old children's book. If you give a mouse a cookie, you give a sin an inch, it's going to take a mile. Let us not be like Eli who kept hearing about sin and yet just said, you know what, someone's going to deal with it. I'm sure they understand their sin. I'm sure they get it. No, no. We need to, as godly men, confront that. That's what a real godly leader will do. Letter D, to be godly leaders who uphold a high view of God, we also must... And I'll just give it to you. Persistently practice putting God first. In verses 29 and 30 of chapter 2, what we see is that God says to Eli twice, you've honored your sons above me. You've honored your sons above me. He says, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I'm going to lightly esteem. One of the dangers, and perhaps even more so in South Orange County, is that we love our families maybe a little too much. Eli can relate to that. But what God wants from us is that we persistently put him first. And I use the word persistent on purpose because it is a daily decision. It is a decision for us to say, you know what, I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. or 4.30, whatever time you're up this morning, to go to men's Bible study. And praise God you're here. I thank God for that. I was praying for you this morning. Praise God you're here. But this is a, a daily decision for us to say, you know what, God first and everything, my money, God first. Yeah, it hurts to take up this 15, 10, 20% that I'm taking off the top, but God first. Yeah, it hurts to give God the best of my morning, but God first. It's a persistent decision that we must make. And without that, that's when we go awry. That's what it looks like to uphold God's, God's holiness, to uphold a high view of him. Checking my time, sorry. Point number one, then, of course, resolve to uphold a high view of God. That's what our goal is. That's what our desire is. And from the life of Eli and his sons, these are some, I think, helpful, practical takeaways that we should understand and embrace. We should resolve to uphold a high view of God. Let's quickly take a look at chapter 3. What I want to point out to you in chapter 3, I'll spare you the, the, the actual exegesis of this, but I think chapter 3 is, is set up with a, a chiastic structure. Uh, chiasm is, uh, if you think of like an arc, it's kind of like a mirror image. So you got A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, and then D. The, 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 the narrative structure seems to point to that middle thing, and that kind of helps you focus where the author intends for you to see. And so I think what's going on here, if you'd like my notes on this, just email me. I'll send you a copy of what I'm looking at. Um, I think the focus of this particular text in chapter 3 is the oracle to Samuel, what God is saying to Samuel about the house of Eli. So all he, all he does is affirm what he said in chapter two. Hey, everything I told you, everything I told Eli in chapter two, Samuel, it's gonna happen. Count on that, bank on that. And then of course, Eli says, hey, what did God say to you? And then Eli is told and he says, hey, let the Lord do what seems good to him. What I, wanna, what I want you to see from this is that God makes it abundantly clear that the stakes for us are incredibly high. And so that's your second point. Remember that the stakes are high. As godly leaders, the abdication of your role is not a small potato kind of thing. It has great weight. It has great responsibility. And the stakes are very, very high. Looking at the life of Eli, what's at stake? Well, discipline for you. Discipline for you. That's the first thing that I think is at stake here. 
Eli was disciplined. Again, I have no reason to think that Eli was not a believer. He was a bad one in a lot of ways, but I still think that God received him. But he was judged very harshly. His entire family suffered because of his sin. And let us remember that God also promises you and I, as new covenant believers, when we sin, he will discipline us because he loves us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 even says that if we sin perpetually and if we, den- if we deny giving God his due deference, he will discipline us even up to death itself. There was a church, uh, the church of Corinth was despising the Lord's, uh, the Lord's table. And so he said, that's why some of you are sick and ill and why some of you have even died. The Lord loves you. He will discipline you. So we need to be aware of that. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Far better for ourselves, far, far better to discipline ourselves unto godliness than that God would discipline us himself. What else is at stake? And this one I hope makes sense. I don't think it's reaching too far. What's at stake? Letter A, discipline for you, but letter B, salvation or condemnation for others. Eli's sons, we have every reason to believe we're not believers. That's what the text says. And therefore, when God kills them in the next chapter, their souls are gone. They're lost. Eli's weak leadership allowed his sons to engage in rampant wickedness. And thus, they secured for themselves judgment from God. The urgency of our godly leadership, gentlemen, is because Lives hang in the balance. We have no idea when our lives are over. We have no idea when our neighbors, family, co-workers' lives are over. We have only today, even the moments we only have. So the urgency is that we have people that are in our sphere of influence that God has commissioned us to reach out to and to be godly leaders for. One of the things I tell my, my leaders, I'm the high school pastor, for those of you guys who don't know, um, one of the things I tell my leaders is, what do, what do your high school students need most from you? I tell them, they need your godliness. Because otherwise, how different are we than a boys and girls club? You know, if we're just hanging out with them and being their best friend, great, great. Let's be the boys and girls club at the Y. No, we are a spiritual organization, and therefore we require spiritual tools. And our greatest weapon is God's word working through us. We must be godly men. I tell that to my high school leaders, and I'm telling that to you because I think that's what God's, that's what God's people are meant to be. God says for us that we are to be holy, we're to be above reproach, self-controlled, upright, and, and godly in the present age. Gentlemen, if we don't do that, who's going to? You can't trust that God's just going to send someone else into your situation and relieve you of the burden and the privilege of being an advocate for the people that you minister to on a regular basis. All this to say, as I wrap it up here, our responsibility looking at the life of Eli and his sons, is to lead as godly leaders. And I've been praying for you that God would help inspire you to take the next step of faith. Guarding our hearts and being godly men is the best thing we can do. And it's the best way you can spend your life, or expend your life rather, to live your life for others. Be godly, be godly, be holy. Esteem God highly. Uphold a a holy and righteous view of him. And then always remember, daily if you have to, that the stakes are high. Sometimes we get in the, 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 the normal flow of things and we forget. We assume that we have tomorrow or the next day. Probability, you'll live longer. God will give you lots of years. But we don't know that. So it's best for us to have an urgency about our commission, our task, to realize that this is what God has called us to. One of the things I didn't notice or didn't note here 
But what I think is obvious is that God continually works in the background. As you see Hophni and Phinehas, these bozos, God continually goes back to Samuel in the narrative. He says, look at Samuel, though. Samuel's growing in the Lord. Samuel's, uh, Samuel's growing in favor with God and men, kind of a hearken to what you see in the New Testament with Jesus. God is always working. And as New Covenant believers, we need to remember that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how, how much we sin, our job is to recognize God is not finished with us yet. Philippians 1.6 tells us that God will finish the work he's begun in us. So as godly leaders, no matter where you are this morning, no matter where you feel you've stumbled and fallen, this morning is a good time to get back up, to repent, and to say, God, I'm going to resolve to follow you more diligently. And there's a lot of room for us, for us all to grow. None of us has reached the pinnacle of godliness, except for Ryan D'Amato. With that said, gentlemen, let me encourage you by saying this morning, make your times of uh, small group time, make it useful, make it productive, engage with it, be honest with one another. Um, I know for a lot of us, you know, we, we get busy um, and we, we don't often slow down enough to get real with one another. Hebrews chapter 3 says that we're to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is our goal. And even during our small group time, let's confess sin, let's repent of that, and let's take steps forward. Let's pray. God, thank you for the example that we have in Scripture. Father, we even thank you that your word says in the New Testament, both in Corinthians and Romans, that we have these examples in the Old Testament for the sake of understanding it, for the, for the sake of instruction. And so I thank you, God, that you have instructed us from your word. And I pray, God, that you would continue to inspire us toward greater godliness. Lord, help us to be warned by the life of Eli, his reluctance to take a bold stand against sin, his reluctance, his hesitation to honor you as holy among the rest. Let that not be true of us here, God. Let that not be true of the men of Compass Bible Church. Let us be sober-minded and diligent. Lord, not cold, stodgy people, but rather joyfully upholding a high view of you and ensuring that our sons, our daughters, our youth in the church are also on board with that, God. Lord, help us to be godly men who set a good example for others that we might bring you glory. We thank you so much for this time this morning, Lord, and pray that you bless our small group time now. Help us to do well in that, to make it a fruitful time of investment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, gentlemen. You're dismissed.